this episode, how to use design thinking to better reach your customers. How do we do smaller chunks of design, validate them, and then adjust course based on what we're learning in shorter cycles. So we're reducing the risk of building and shipping something that our customers don't want. You're listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast, insights and information from world-class leadership experts. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Randy Lane. On today's show, I'm talking with Jeff Gotthelf. He's a former software designer who's now a business consultant and author. He helps companies use design thinking to stay relevant in a changing world. What got you here will definitely not get you there. <laughs> the pace of change is just too rapid. What's changing is the underlying technology and the expectations from consumers. And now, here's Jeff. <laughs> Well, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. If we could start out, can you kind of tell us about your background? Sure. My background is design, actually. I was a software designer for a decade, and reaching a critical point 10 years into my career, I decided that there had to be more to this world than just wireframes and sketches and, and designs for, for screens. I found an opportunity at the time to lead a design team, and right at that same moment, that design team, along with the rest of the software development world, was going through a fairly significant shift, a transition where the software development world was moving towards an agile way of working. And there wasn't a spot, a clear spot, for design to work in that world. And that was a, a global problem because everyone's looking at Apple. Apple's crushing it with great design. Mm -hmm. And everyone's looking at Agile and organizations are doing really great software development with Agile. But putting those two things together wasn't happening successfully. I found myself in a position to figure that problem out with the help of my team at the time I did. And I wrote a book based on the results of that called Lean UX. In the years since Lean UX has come out, I've spent uh, my time as a coach, a consultant, and a keynote speaker, and a trainer with organizations teaching them how to bridge the world of really good customer-centric design thinking and excellent uh, agile software engineering. What's fascinating is that the feedback that's come back over the years from doing that was twofold. It said, Jeff, these are great ideas and we want to implement them, but my boss won't let me work this way. <laughs> and my company doesn't run this way. What should I do? And so, along with my co-author, Josh Seiden, we saw that as a real opportunity to write another book called Sense and Respond. And this time it was a business book that was directly targeted at leaders, current leaders, aspiring leaders to say, look, you need to rethink what your business's raw material is, its software, how you run it, and what a modern software-based business looks like and how to measure success. And so I've been spending my time now working with executives, coaching companies about rethinking their digital transformation efforts to be more customer-centric and more outcome-focused. Yeah, and you're totally right that kind of the way things have changed in the past 10 or 15 years have completely upended businesses. I mean, our company alone here, we used to print a lot of training manuals and ship them all over the world. And now most of our training manuals and, and supplies are done via an app. And uh, we have drop shipping available, so we don't need to have a, a large staff of printing and receiving. And the amount of staff we, have, we need to actually get the job done has decreased quite a bit. So I'm, I'm assuming almost every single company you can think of has been affected by technology in some way. And some are getting it and some are not. 
Absolutely. One of my former clients is a company in the UK called Auto Trader UK. You might know them in the US as Auto Trader. Right. Now, they're two separate companies, but okay. they actually do pretty much the same thing. Auto Trader UK has been around for 40 years. They used to have, just like you just said, they had 4,000 people working for them who mm. were on the ground salespeople. They were printing the, the physical paper that listed used cars for sale. Now, in the last decade or so, they've transformed into an entirely digital business. The print publication doesn't exist anymore. They have less than a thousand employees today, and they've and they've expanded their business in such a way that there's no way that a, a paper-based business could have ever done is the technology that allowed them to move into these adjacent businesses. And so, I think it's really interesting your leadership style because we have a lot of people come on this podcast who are leaders of companies and we have different types of leadership styles we look at, you know, and the one that people kind of associate the most with the type A leader is trailblazer or visionary, the person who has the big plan and the idea. And kind of what gets lost sometimes is another leadership trait we call architect, which is the person who looks at it and says, okay, I see your grand plan, your vision, but how do we actually do that? Do you think your background as a designer kind of helps you see that perspective more than the people who are kind of like, I don't care how it happens, just get it done. Absolutely, because as a software designer especially, there is a component of the work that we do that is focused on developing empathy for customers. And when you get to know your customers and you understand what they're trying to do, inevitably it punches holes in your perception of their reality. Mm -hmm. So we make a series of assumptions about the problem that they have, how we will solve them, why they'll love it, and how successful we'll be. And then as soon as you start to build those conversations, those feedback loops with, those tar with the target audience, you find out that you're wrong. <laughs> and that teaches us humility. Mm -hmm. And to me, that is the quality that inevitably these leaders need to, to find today is, the, is that humility. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I do feel like ego really plays into it. I mean, I meet a lot of leaders who have this grand vision and it's great, but they may not be agile enough to kind of roll with the punches and say, okay, my style did not work. My idea did not work. Let me look at the data and find out how to actually reach these people, how to actually have a profitable company. There's a phrase that I love. I learned it from a, a former colleague in San Francisco named Janice Frazier. The phrase is strong opinions loosely held. Mm -hmm. To me, that is the hallmark of a good modern leader because I don't want to discount your experience, your expertise, your gut feeling, your vision. Those things are fantastic and we need those for good leadership. But in the face of evidence, and you have to go seek that evidence out, let's be clear. But in the face of evidence, you're willing to change your mind. To me, that's the key. That's humility, right? You're not abdicating vision. You're not abdicating leadership. You're just saying, look, this is what I think. It's based on everything that I know. But if you prove to me that I'm wrong, I'm willing to change my mind. Some of our audience is not going to be as technically minded as maybe you or I. So can you kind of explain the idea of UX. Sure. User experience is, is every touch point that your customer has with your product or service. It really encompasses everything from the website to the call center, to the in-store experience, to if, if you have 
house calls, whatever the touch point is, everything, your, your social media accounts, your print catalogs. In some cases, it's even the packaging of your products. I mean, look, every time a new tech product comes out, there's a video that pops out immediately about unpackaging the new iPhone, mm-hmm. unpackaging that. All of those are part of the user experience. And so when you're talking about a lean UX, what does that mean as opposed to a non-lean UX? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, the, the the reason for that that initial conversation around changing the design process was that the way that we delivered a user experience in software uh, particularly, has fundamentally shifted. I think it now affects pretty much every industry. You remember, it's not that long ago, I'm going to say 10, let's say 15 years ago, just to be on the safe side, maybe a little bit longer. Software came in a box. Mm-hmm. You went to the store and you bought a box of software. In that world, there was no difference in in software or buying a, uh, I, I don't know, a kitchenware, a plate, right, a set, of, a set of cups, that type of thing. It was a thing you went to the store and bought in a box. In that world, there was a lot of upfront design that was done, a lot of assumptions that were baked into that to say, look, I assume that this is a good design for this cup. I assume this is a good design for this software. And then you shipped it and you hoped that people would buy it and you hoped that it would work. What's different today is that you don't buy software in a box. In fact, it just shows up on your phone, in your browsers, wherever it is. And the capability that we have today to update it continues as often as we want, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Organizations, certainly your apps update every two weeks, uh, websites update multiple times a day. That allows us to learn much more quickly if we're building a great customer experience. We don't have to wait until someone buys the box of software and installs it and then gives us feedback, right? It just shows up. And then if they use it, if they don't use it, if they buy from us, if they don't buy, if they come back on a regular basis, they tell their friends, if they write us a positive review, right? These are all behaviors that we can see that tell us that we've delivered value. Mm -hmm. And then it's up to us to determine what to do with that information. And so that just allows us, so it's the lean part of this comes in saying, look, we take a whole lot of risk if we do that big upfront design stage. How do we do smaller chunks of design, validate them, and then adjust course based on what we're learning in shorter cycles? Mm-hmm. So we're reducing the risk of building and shipping something that our customers don't want. And I'm guessing also from the language of design and, and software, you guys are doing like the idea of beta testing or releasing to a small group to kind of get feedback so that you're never having to make that huge risk. You have some idea of what your customers want before you actually put a lot of money into it. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Those are the kinds of experiments that we run. We've done things as seemingly crazy, although not that not that complicated, honestly, of faking the software. Mm-hmm. So it looks like software. It feels like software, but behind the scenes, there was no real code. It was just humans moving data from one place to another and giving the perception of an automated service to see if people would would use it, renew their subscription, that type of thing, before we invested heavily in actually building out the product. Mm-hmm. Also, I think about you know how the user experience online and the expectation of the user has changed over the years. I feel like it wasn't that long ago that you use a website and you may not know exactly how it works or like a tool right away and you have to kind of figure it out and you maybe need some instructions. But I feel like everything that's built recently is built to you just start using it, you kind of poke around and you get it. I mean, a good example is an iPhone. It's a very cut and dry, like this is how it works. And most people with very little technical expertise can use it. Is that something that 
leaders aren't doing well enough is saying, okay, we really need to think about how everybody's going to experience this thing and kind of build for everyone. It's of brand value. This is something that I get asked all the time. We want to be the apple of real estate. We want to be <laughs> the Netflix of medical services. That's terrific. Is great customer experience a brand value for you? Are you building a culture? Are you leading an organization that values great customer experience, great user experience? Nine times out of 10, the answer is no. And then we start to get into, okay, well, then this is why these types of activities are getting deprioritized inside your organization, because your organization values other things. Now, look, there's nothing wrong with making a conscious leadership brand value decision to say, we're not going to focus on, we're not going to be the easiest product to use in the market, right? Mm -hmm. You might differentiate yourself some other way. Right. And I've worked in organizations like that. But if you want to be the Apple of whatever, the Netflix of whatever, then you have to prioritize customer centricity and great customer experience as a core value of the organization and then budget accordingly, hire accordingly, measure success accordingly. You can't just say those words and hope that it happens. <laughs> when you're working with an organization, are you working with more technical organizations or are you working with organizations that are trying to become more modernized that maybe weren't? These days I work with almost every kind of organizations, but generally speaking, I work with the, the technology teams inside traditional companies. So I, I work with a lot of large clients, banks, insurance companies, telcos, that type of thing. Organizations that have been around for a long time are big and successful, have huge tech departments, and are now trying to figure out how to transform digitally mm. to take advantage of this software-driven world. In addition to that, I am working with organizations now that traditionally don't have any kind of tech component as well and are trying to figure out how to integrate it in the most effective way, because the barriers to entry, look, this is, this is one of the biggest risks that I think leaders do get for the most part, is that the barriers to entry have crumbled. If you want to build almost any kind of business, the hurdles that you have to jump through today are a tenth, if not a, a hundredth of what they were 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'll give you an example. I, I run a book publishing press. Right? I published my partner and I, we published small business books. Five years ago, I could never have done that without partnering with a, a, a book publishing factory somewhere, mm -hmm. shipping, logistics, fulfillment, all of that thing. Today, we run the entire thing as a service on the Amazon platform. Mm -hmm. They provide us, I mean, there's no inventory, everything's print on demand, everything's sold through them, we're global, right? That is competition that the book industry didn't have. 10 years ago. Every industry is facing that same level of challenge. So when you're working with these organizations, you know, they've been around for a long time. They're industries that are as old as time itself. You know, you said like banking and insurance, those have been around for a long time. When you're working with the tech department, you're seeing a lot of like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But how do you break through to those leaders who have a more traditional mindset, who are at the top of the company to say, this really does matter. This is something that's going to either make or break you. The work that I do tends to focus on the customer behaviors that drive the top line metrics that every executive, every leader measures, sales, profit, revenue, net promoter score, those types of things. Every, every leader looks at those metrics. The conversation I try to have is one layer below that. What are the leading indicators 
of those metrics that you care about. Mm -hmm. As you start to break that out, inevitably, those end up being customer behaviors. How many times people come visit the store? How frequently do they come back? What is the average order value? Um, how, how frequently do they uh, share something with a colleague online or write a review, right? These are measures of customer behavior. And there is an infinite combination of features, services, value propositions, calls to action that can spur customers to those behaviors. And the reality is that we don't know the exact recipe to make those things happen. And so that's when we start to build in this, this concept of humility and continuous learning. The amazing thing is that the inspiration that we get from technology is the ability to learn quickly and continuously, to experiment, to prototype, to, to build something that teaches us and gives us a bit more direction on where we should go with the thing that we're building, because ultimately what we're trying to do is change customer behavior. Mm. And that, that's the biggest shift that I try to make with organizations is that making the thing, whatever it is, the credit card, the loan, the insurance policy, whatever it is that you're making is the beginning of the conversation with your target audience. What we're trying to do is change their behavior to make them more successful in whatever goal they're trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And that's the true measure of success. I see a lot of leaders and you ask them about their strategy and they say, we're going to do this and this is the products we offer and, and this is our customer. And a lot of times I'll be like, what evidence do you have of that? And they're like, yeah. well, I just, I just feel like that's probably where it's going. And I'm assuming if you approach them and you say, listen, I've really looked at all the data that tells me who your customer is, who tells me who your customer could be, and who tells you, you know, not only what products they like today, but what products they might like in the future. You know, that's just all dollar signs for them. They're like, wow, that's amazing insight that I didn't have before. And it's amazing how many leaders that I run into just are running on a hunch or we've always done it this way. So it's going to work. Sure. Yeah. There's a couple of things here, right? So, so first of all, what got you here will definitely not get you there. <laughs> the pace, the pace of change is just too rapid. And, and what that's, let's be clear. What's changing is, is the underlying technology and the expectations from consumers. Consumer expectations are being shifted every day by Amazon, Netflix, iOS, right? Apple, Android, Nest thermo thermostats, like all of these innovative products that deliver products and services in ways that were never delivered before. Those expectations are coming home to roost in every industry, right? Banking, insurance. I, I did some work with a client. They do GIS mapping for telcos. So they, they create sort of maps that, that tell the telco where to build cell phone towers. Okay. Their clients come in and they're pinching and zooming on the screen to move the map and it doesn't do it. It doesn't, and they, the question is, why doesn't it work like Google Maps, <laughs> right? And, and they lost business because of this, right? The expectations are there. So what got you here is terrific, but if you're not paying attention to those shifting consumer expectations and behaviors and they're changing on a daily basis, you're at great risk of, of not meeting those expectations. So if I'm a CEO or a leader in a, in a company and I say, Jeff, I'm really scared of being left behind, what's the best way for a leader of an, of an organization, once they know now that you know this really matters and this could make or break us, what are some of like the first baby steps you would have them take to make sure they stay relevant? The most important thing they can do is talk to their customers. It's so basic, it's so cheap, 
Sometimes it's even free. Mm-hmm. It just takes time, effort, and a little bit of humility. And just ask them about how, how your product currently meets their needs, how they've done it in the past, where they're struggling. Just start to build that regular cadence of customer conversations. You don't need statistical significance. You just need to talk to the same kind of person on a consistent basis and some kind of frequency, and the patterns will emerge very, very quickly. You'll start to see where you're excelling, where you're failing to meet expectations, where the competition is sneaking up on you, and maybe where there's some potential opportunities for you to improve your product or service. But by far, the easiest, fastest, cheapest thing you can do, talk to your customers. And so you're also saying that you know an important quality in a leader is someone who's constantly learning. What are some of the ways that you would encourage leaders to keep learning and stay kind of on the, on the bleeding edge of what's going on in business? I think it's really important to pay attention, obviously, to emerging technologies. But the risk there is that then you will use that emerging technology as a hammer to hit everything that looks like a nail and everything will look like a nail. So for example, again, we'll talk about banks for a second. I do a lot of work with banks. Artificial intelligence and machine learning Mm -hmm. are the hottest phrases in the tech world right now. And every bank you talk to is putting in chatbots into their apps. I'm I'm a Bank of America customer. Mm -hmm. Here's a perfect example. I've been a Bank of America customer for a long time and I've been an early adopter of all of their technology. Generally speaking, I'm a fan of their mobile app. Recently, they put a chatbot in the mobile app named Erica. And every time I log on to to pay a bill, check a balance, whatever it is, Erica asks me if she can help me do something today. (laughs) And and honestly, like I have no idea what to do with it because I know how to pay my bills. I know how to check my balance. I know how to transfer money from one place to the other. Like what else am I going to do in here? Like it's a a mobile banking app. The risk there is is that. So, So pay attention to the emerging trends understand their capabilities you don't need to become a technical expert mm-hmm. but like understanding the, the capabilities is valuable and as customer problems arise that this might help solve entertain that option i think that's the key and, and look read read how your competitors are using technology and where it's working for them, where it's not. Because again, it might look flashy, the overwhelming majority of the time it's gimmicky. And so test where the value is. If you don't know, talk to the customers of your competitor who plugged in that new hot technological feature. There's nothing stopping you. Like in other words, if somebody from Capital One called me today and said, hey Jeff, are you a Bank of America customer? Can you tell us a little bit about how you use their app? Sure. Well, I hate Erica. About it. I hate Erica. <laughs> Erica, she just clutters up the, the, the UX. See, that's UX. <laughs> Right, she she gets in my way, and I've you know, and I've never met her. I'm sure, she's a, I'm sure she's a lovely person. That's hilarious. I also feel like there's probably a, a issue with like people get so hung up on the technology that they kind of they're doing the grass is greener type of thing, and they're comparing themselves to their neighbor or their competition so much that they're not actually innovating themselves. Yes, feature parity is an endless arms race. If they're doing it, we have to do it. Mm-hmm. Right? You have no idea why they're doing it, what their strategy is, and whether this is even successful for them. It's not a strategy. It's, it's an arms race. And what you end up with in an arms race is bloated products and services where you've got a bunch of stuff in there that you're supporting because you're offering it that an, a, a small minority of your customer base actually uses. And that's a huge cost for you. 
that's it hits your efficiency bottom line. There are so many stories where feature parity didn't make sense. Um, again, tech example, I just have a lot of them, so it's easy. Um, but Instagram is a great is a great example. Instagram has a billion users, is probably the most successful photo sharing app ever. In 2013, Instagram had a competitor called Mobly. Hmm. Mobly, I'm sure you've never heard of them. No <laughs> one's ever heard of them. They were around for three years. They copied Instagram feature for feature for three years until they ran out of venture capital. And you've never heard of them. Why? Because Instagram did everything that they were doing to drive engagement and build community. The focus of Instagram wasn't so much photo editing, right? But it was photo sharing. And it was about ultimately designed to build community, which is what Facebook acquired. Right. They acquired the community, right? Mobile was just like, well, you can take a photo and you can edit that photo and you can send it to your friends, right? But they never, they never optimized the experience to achieve that overall strategy. And they're gone and Instagram has a billion users. And so that's the thing that, to remember is that feature parity is, is not a strategy. It just ends up in an, in an arms race that rarely yields any kind of positive results. Well, I really like your strategy because if I'm an organization and I see these competitors and they have these features and stuff, really, I should I should be aware that's going on. But sticking to what do the customers want is going to be more profitable and have better features in the long run, right? Yeah. And, and how, how you choose to differentiate yourself. I'll give you another story. So I did, did a little bit of work in the fantasy sports, online fantasy sports world okay. a few years ago. And in the U.S., I don't know what the situation is now, but certainly a couple of years ago, there were two big players in the space, right? There was FanDuel and there was DraftKings. That's it. Yes. There was FanDuel and there was DraftKings. Where have they gone? They were... I haven't heard them in for a long, such a yeah, long time. <laughs> so there's a story there that I, I don't know if we've got time for in this, in this podcast. But, but look, you've got two services in an arms race essentially spending millions of dollars to acquire customers and essentially offering the exact same service and splitting the market mm -hmm. in half. Basically, they owned, like those two companies owned the market. And so the question is, how do you want to differentiate, right? FanDuel decided that at that time, at least, that their approach to differentiation was we are going to be the friendly, fun place where you hang out and casually and spend time with your friends and, and you know, but, but much more friendly, much more laid back as, as opposed to DraftKings, which was perceived as kind of a more testosterone heavy male, like this is where we go to kind of battle it out and see who wins the fantasy sports kind of thing. In that case, that was their strategy to, 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 to differentiate. And that's the thing that I, that, that I think you have, to, you have to understand is that strategy then determines what you build, how you deliver your service, how you price it, what you call it, how you advertise it, right? And so that's the key here is to, is to understand that you're always going to have competition. What makes you better or different? Yeah, and it's funny. I felt like whenever I watched any sort of sporting event, like a few years ago, DraftKings was like every other commercial. It was really annoying. <laughs> they were spending, I mean, between the two of them, it was hundreds of millions of dollars oh in gosh. customer acquisition. <laughs> I saw also that you, on your bio, that you kind of talk about design sprints. Can you kind of explain what a design sprint is and how you could use this in maybe a company that's not design-centric? A design sprint is a, a relatively new name for a concept that's been around for a little while. It's, it's a time box, so it's, it's, it's short, finite activity that allows all the people involved in the creation of a product or a service to get together in a room for those three to five days to share all of the assumptions that they have about what will make 
for a successful product or service, to prototype some of those ideas very roughly with paper, with cardboard, with, with tape, uh, what, whatever, whatever it takes, to show those ideas to customers quickly, to iterate on that prototype, and to end that week with a slightly more validated worldview about what a successful product or service could look like. It's an intense, scripted, facilitated activity that's designed to get as much real-world fact as opposed to strong opinion Mm -hmm. into the conversation so that when the initiative starts development for real, when you start to actually work to build this thing, we're working from some element of evidence. And so is there a way that we could use that, you know, as a regular company that's not a software type of company or can kind of refine the products they offer, can kind of help them get some clarity on some issues? Absolutely. So let's say again, so let's use banking for a second. So you're a bank and you want to issue a new credit card type, right? You make credit cards. That's what you do. You're, you make a series of assumptions that uh, travel benefits coupled with uh, vacation discounts will, will attract the kind of customer that you're looking for. Uh, you have a sense of how to present that. You have a sense of what the value proposition would be. We get together all the people in the room. Those are all assumptions, right? To be clear, those are all everybody's best guesses about what will make for a successful product. We put all those ideas out there. We discuss amongst all of those things, what are the risks? What are the biggest risks that we have about this new credit card product? Somebody will say, well, whether you know we can differentiate it sufficiently enough from all the other things that we currently offer. And you might decide that that's really important to test because if you can't differentiate it sufficiently, no one will get it. And then we talk about it. Well, what's the easiest way for us to test that? Well, you could fake commercials or marketing material for it in the course of that room. You build some ads, maybe you show them to some people, maybe you you put them online, uh, you get some feedback, and then you decide based on that how to best continue down this particular path. So the the, the concepts hold true for whether you're building software, insurance policies, Sharpie markers, microphones, you name it, because there's assumptions that go into every single product development. And the question is, where should we invest? Yeah. And if you can understand where you're best going to deliver customer value, by witnessing the changes in their behavior that you're looking for, the easier it is to make those investment decisions, the less risky it is. So talking to you and kind of thinking about some of the most basic ideas that can get some really big return on investment just from what you've been talking about. Like, so tell me if this is a good idea or a bad idea. If I'm an organization that has collected for marketing use, you know, emails or contact information of my users, my customers, would it be a good idea to put together every once in a while, kind of like a survey about how people perceive the stuff that they've bought, the products, the services, and try to maybe offer an incentive. Like if you fill this out, we'll, we'll put you in the running for a $50 Amazon gift card or something like that. I know that's important because there's so many surveys I pass on that are like, you know, why, why would I give you 20 minutes of my time? I, my time is very valuable, but if there's a potential upside for me, of course, I'm going to you know, look, look into it. But it seems like a very inexpensive way to get some insight from your customers. Generally speaking, I am not a fan of surveys. Okay. They're extremely difficult to write well, mm. first of all. There, there are people who can do it and you can pay them to do that. And you should, if you choose to go down this path. They're difficult to write well. And like you said, they get ignored a lot. So mm. you have to ask yourself, well, who's actually got the time to fill these things, who's taking the time Uh, to actually fill these things out. And then most importantly, I think with surveys, the challenge is it's extremely difficult to understand why somebody is answering a survey in a particular way. 
I gave you a six out of 10 on this particular service. Well, why? And they might give you a couple sentences, but it's not a story. Hmm. I think it's a far more valuable use of your time, effort, and resources, and those incentives that you mentioned to get your customers to talk to you and tell you a story. Really easy. Tell me about the last time you used our product or service. Or tell me about the last time you tried to buy an insurance policy. And just listen for those stories. Because if you ask three, four, five people the same question, and you know, and these are relevant people, not just any random five people, but relevant people, right. the biggest obstacles to your success reveal themselves almost immediately. And then I, I think probably one of the other things that based on your ideas that I would do and I, I try to do for all of our clients and for ourselves is track as much as you can with the behavior of your people. So you know like who's buying what, where, when are they buying it, when are they visiting the site, are they doing what you want them to do as far as you know filling out a form to get a lead magnet, something like that. So just always having that data to look through and kind of glean some insights. Analytics are key. I think it's irresponsible in the 21st century not to be measuring customer behavior with with your product and service. And this is obviously very, very easy and simple to do with any kind of digital product or service, but there's no reason you can't be doing it in physical environments as well. Understanding how many people come through your store on a daily basis, how many people actually buy something. It's, it's critical to the success of your business and it's critical for making better guesses, right? So how do we move forward from here Again, that's an educated guess. I want to be clear. I know you're smart. I know you're, you're excellent leaders, but it's an educated guess. You can make better guesses if they're data informed. Mm -hmm. Well, if people want to find you, what's the best way to find you online? I'm super easy to find online. That's by design. Um, I have a LinkedIn profile. Please feel free to connect there. I write on Medium and on my website. If you go to jeffgothealth.com, all the links are there for all of my social media, all of my writing. Uh, all the books, easiest way. Can you spell out your last name? G-O-T as in Tom, H-E-L-F as in Frank. It's jeffgothealth.com. Got health? Mm-hmm. Like got health, like, a, you know, are you healthy? Mm-hmm. Okay. Easy way to remember. Excellent. That's right. And you got two books, is that right? Uh, technically three. Three, okay. If, if, if I'm humble bragging just a little bit. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I wrote a book called Lean UX. It's on Amazon. You can absolutely find it there. The second book is called Sense and Respond from Harvard Business Review Press. It's also on Amazon. And the third book is called Lean versus Agile versus Design Thinking. It's a short book about reconciling process into a more customer-centric way, also available on Amazon. All right, Jeff. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. I've learned a lot and I have a lot of actionable insights I'm going to start implementing. My pleasure, Randy. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to the High Performance Leadership Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us. Every little bit helps. Our website is hpleadershippodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash hpleadershippodcast. Follow us on Twitter at hpl underscore podcast and shoot us an email at podcast at 360solutions.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.